Welcome to the Healing Trauma Podcast, a space for those who are healing from complex and developmental trauma. Introducing your host, Monique Cohen, a certified trauma recovery coach, survivor, and thriver. The intent of the podcast is to provide helpful information with insight that can validate, encourage, and support you on your healing journey. You're going to hear stories from other survivors and trauma experts, featuring therapists, coaches, and practitioners. We will open up the conversation on effective trauma healing modalities, practices, and tools. If you are interested in trauma recovery coaching, as well as recommended books and healing resources, head over to www.thehealingtraumapodcast.com. And now, here is your host, Monique Coven. Welcome back, everyone. I'm so happy to share today's episode with you. Dr. Ingrid Clayton is going to be talking about her memoir that she just released, and it's her story of complex trauma, healing from complex trauma, understanding complex trauma, and healing from narcissistic abuse at the hands of her stepfather. And I love that we will be able to talk about this experience because often when we have lived through narcissistic abuse or growing up in a household where there was complex trauma experienced, when we haven't had the validation, we often feel so alone in the experience and we wonder if our if our responses are normal and if they make sense. And so that's why I'm so glad to share this particular episode with you. I hope that listening, you will see that you too make sense. So now on to the episode. Hi, Ingrid. Hello, Monique. It's so good to see you. It is so great to see you. Ingrid is a friend of mine and I, she's been on the podcast before. Some of you may have remembered. It was um, a great episode. You hadn't yet writ- written your book, but you were, was it in your mind that you were going well, to be writing? Well, I was writing? in process because I, I had been writing it for about five years, but mm-hmm. your podcast was the first time I ever even talked about the book out loud. And uh, the entire end hadn't been written because the end was written based on pretty current events. And so things have changed a great deal since then. And it certainly wasn't published because it's only been out a few weeks now. I... I'm speechless because I I couldn't put your book down and on so many levels, mm-hmm. even though our experiences, some of them weren't the same, a lot of them were. And I think the audience is really going to resonate with, with your experiences. Mm-hmm. And I love that you are having the opportunity now to have your voice heard because it wasn't heard for most of your life. And there's just so much um, emotion involved in that. I'm so, I'm so happy. I'm so happy that you're using your voice here too. Mm -hmm. So let's start, let's start with your book. And I love the, I love the title. It's called Believing Me. So why did you decide to call it Believing Me? Oh boy. Okay. So it is a memoir, even though I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm a trauma therapist, 
this book is a memoir. And it includes a big glossary in the back with relevant clinical terms, because I know people are interested in that. But it was really just my story. And um, as I said, I started writing it five years ago, not knowing what I was writing about, not knowing what it was for, not identifying myself as a trauma survivor, not knowing I had complex PTSD, not able to articulate that I grew up in what is pretty classic narcissistic abuse of a family system with my stepfather being the narcissist. I did not have that language for my own story because I grew up in gaslighting. I grew up in gaslighting where I was told over and over and over that didn't happen. Um, okay, maybe parts of it happened, but they weren't that big of a deal. You're just being dramatic. You're the problem. You're a liar on and on. And so even though that never completely erased my experience, it did erase my ability to fully trust myself, mm -hmm. right? Which is what gaslighting does. And so, so gaslighting isn't just a differing opinion. I think sometimes people can talk about it that way, like stop gaslighting me as though someone having a differing opinion is gaslighting you. Gaslighting is psychological manipulation designed to make you question your sanity. And so the reality is, is that that gaslighting worked and I questioned my own sanity. And so I was like, well, I know that that happened and I know that it impacted me, but maybe that wasn't their intention, right? So I just, there was this deep minimization about my relationship to my own story, not only what happened, but then how I lived with these trauma responses for decades. So when it was time, and, and for many years as I was writing the book, once I realized what I was writing about, the working title was Maybe It Wasn't That Bad, mm -hmm. because it was about this relationship to the truth and how I lived with this minimization for so long. I loved that title. I was never going to change that title. And then I started working on the cover art, and the cover art was sort of dark and not very hopeful, and it was it was like oh my goodness, why, why is the artwork coming back? So, um, so I was saying, why is the artwork coming back? So sort of, sort of dark. And I, and I thought about it and I thought, you know what, it's the title because the title did not hold the hope that the book ended up containing once I had written the whole thing. So a dear, dear friend of mine named Jillian, she, and I was like, Jillian, the title, I, I never thought I would change it, but now I have to change it. And so we started thinking, what is something that contains the whole story? Not just what you lived with for so long in the minimizing, but where it took you. And so I said at one point, believing me. And she said, that's it. And I said, no, it's a little too, it's a little too declarative. It's a little too bold, right? Because I'm still in process I think I might always be in this process of coming to believe me, to believe in me, to believe my story, to believe I'm worth it, to believe I can and should have a voice when I was told I shouldn't for so long. So, you know, what I often say is that there's no finish line in trauma recovery. It's an ongoing process. And I feel like the title was maybe just a little further along in its process than I was in mine. But my friend just kind of held my feet to the fire. And she said, Ingrid, that is exactly what you've written. And then I came to trust it. And now I'm just, I love it so 
much. I love it so much for me and for any trauma survivor whose story has been minimized, who was told it didn't matter, who was told they were meant to get over it and it's in the past and learn to forgive. Um, no, your story, your voice matters and I believe in you too. So that's how we got there. It was like a last minute, this is what it is. <laughs> it actually, your friend was so wise and you have yeah. to thank her for me too. Yes, <laughs> I I it, it's such a, it's such a perfect title, mm -hmm. um, especially reading your story. But like you said, for, for all trauma survivors, we do, yeah. because our trauma experience is not validated. We, um, we, we sort of question, um, maybe it wasn't that bad. I mean, we know it was bad because we're living with the symptoms, right? but still, so when you start to really put that forth, believing me, believing mm -hmm. what I know inside of me and my cells and my bones and my, you know, that, that just, uh, is, is very empowering. Even hearing you say it right now, I got goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, yeah. And so I guess I'll start with, uh, with your mom's boyfriend. Um, did she, she married him, right? She married him. Yeah. They were married until he passed away about five years ago. They were married for over three decades. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So even, you know, in the book, when you're talking about just the environment Mm -hmm. uh, what you lived it with day in and day out, that there was a difference between what it was like before and how you, the air was so thick and walking on eggshells. And a lot of us can relate to, to what that was. It's like the air sucked out of your, your body. And I, I felt for you even then, um, mm -hmm. that experience, but what can you, what can you tell us a little bit about him and, and your relationship with him? So, you know, it's, again, I didn't, even though I'm a psychologist, I was not able to identify my stepdad as someone who had narcissistic personality disorder until I was years into writing this book. And what happened is that I was truly called to write what initially felt like essays. <clears throat> they were sort of these fully formed memories of my childhood as though they were in a freeze frame, just captured, frozen in time. And they dumped onto the page. And there were so many, there were way more than could ever fit in one book. It would be volumes, but it's like every single incident of the silent treatment, you know, when what that felt like to be ignored in my own home where I literally felt like I didn't exist or the punishments, the steep, steep punishments for really silly, innocuous things that there, there wasn't discipline in the sense of, I value you as a human being and I respect you as a child and my job as a parent to help you learn and grow and foster all these things. It, it was more about conditioning me and my brother and the whole family um, into doing what my stepdad needed us and wanted us to do because he was in charge. Our world revolved around him. And you just felt that. You felt that you were sort of a pawn in this bigger story and there was no way out, um, which really is typical of, of, a, of a narcissistic or dysfunctional, toxic sort of family system. Yeah. So uh, in the book, you talk about um, how he started um, 
taking more of an interest in you yeah and how you know you didn't really expect that at first you just thought it was oh maybe he's being nice to me right yeah when did you start to realize that hey this this is not this is not this is not right yeah well what i know now is that this cycle of devaluing me, um, isolating me, giving me the silent treatment, punishing me. And then these moments of, you see me, I exist. Not only do I exist, you're buying me these expensive, wonderful gifts and you're seeing that I'm talented and you want to nurture that, that this was the setup of the cycle for trauma bonding. And that what happens is this hormonal attachment that we really confuse for love, a lot of people, because the lows are low, but the highs are so high. And it's the abuser who's rescuing you. And because we are wired for survival, and because we are stuck in this abuse cycle, this trauma bonding, our long-term memory is shut down. Mm-hmm. All we know in the moment is that, oh, now we're safe because I'm being seen and I'm being taken care of. And we marry that feeling now with the abuser because they're the ones who rescued us. Mm-hmm. This is so important. It's why so many people can't leave toxic relationships um, because they literally feel like they can't survive or exist without the abuser. And so long-term, this was the cycle that was created, but I will never forget the moment I was 13 Uh, And I was in the hot tub. We lived in the Colorado mountains and we had a hot tub out on the back deck and my stepdad came out and he was sort of shifting out of, you know, that punishing, um, seeing me through this really critical lens to all of a sudden he was kind and, and it was so welcoming and he was curious, you know, talking to me like I was an actual person. And it just felt like, it feels like you can breathe again. It feels like, (gasps) you know, I'm a real, I'm a real live girl, you know? And, um, and then he asked me to sit on his lap and the way that he did it and the way that he talked about, um, I'm glad that we can be this close, you know, other girls might want more personal space from the men in their lives, but I'm glad that you're not like that. And so there was this blurring of boundaries in a way that he was saying was no big deal but my body knew that it was a very big deal and I was terrified and I needed to get out of there. And that was the moment I knew that was the moment, even though I couldn't quite understand it at 13, my body was aware that this was a terrifying situation. Um, And it was the beginning of what was a long-term real grooming strategy. And what I came to know through researching the book, because part of what happened is I wasn't just called to write these essays. Monique, I called anyone who would listen from my past, my counselor in high school, social services in in Aspen. uh, Do you still have the records from my family when we were mandated to therapy? And and I ended up getting more history from my stepdad that this was a pattern of his, was grooming young girls and hearing their- Sorry to interrupt you. You got- you got history from who? Well, the one that was most impactful was um, his second wife. Uh My stepbrother's mother was willing to 
talk to me about her experience. And the first thing she said on the phone to me was, Ingrid, I was a victim of his too. And I was like, what are you even talking about? And she goes on to tell me a story that when she was 15, how he started grooming her and he took her to Mexico to get married without her consent on her 16th birthday and goes on and on and on. But it's her story is in the book and how I discover all of this. It was like tracing paper over my own experiences. And because I believed her without a doubt, yes, he was grooming you. Yes, this is abuse. It allowed me to start to go, then this is what happened to me. This is what my body always knew. But this process of how I had to sort of connect the dots was just, I mean, I sort of, to be honest, can't believe that it happened at all, that it happened the way that it did, that it wasn't traditional therapy of sitting on a therapist's couch. It was me and my computer and this need to write about it and talk about it until I was abundantly clear. It was like, I had to validate my own experience. I was not going to put it in anyone's hands any longer. Mm -hmm. uh, this is real. I am real. And with each mm -hmm. call and with each page that I wrote, it was like these atrophied parts of my being were being filled in with color and energy. Uh, my breath was my own breath. I mean, it's it literally brought me back to life or to life in a way that I've never experienced. Oh, I, I'm just listening to that and I'm thinking, you know, that is brought you back to life. I think that a common experience for trauma survivors is that they had these horrific experiences and because they weren't um, believed or seen, they, maybe they were dismissed, they were just pushed to the side. And so you, you carry that, you carry that with you. Absolutely. And it, it's, it's just, it, it actually boggles my mind because when you think about it logically, you would think that's horrific what happened and wouldn't right. you notice? And, and to think that it's like, no, people didn't see it or they didn't. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so yeah. I'm going to bring up your mom. Yeah. Um, because uh, in the story, she was not exactly an advocate for you. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Your relationship with your mom? What was her what was her experience with what was going on? Yeah. So I haven't mentioned, but, uh, you know, uh, addiction and alcoholism was also very much a part of my childhood. So I was aware that both of my parents actually, and both of their spouses after they divorced uh, were all active alcoholics. And so that was a big piece of it. Um, but I remember very distinctly when my mom married Randy or right when he moved in actually. Um, and I knew him by the way, my whole life because he was my dad's best friend. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of how he really came into our lives. Um, but it was like there was a light switch in my mom where she went from being herself, having opinions, her own voice, to only saying something if she had heard Randy say it before or not saying anything at all until she could run it by him. I, I literally had the experience that he was like this um is the marionette the puppeteer or is the marionette the puppet? I'm not sure. Either way, he had her on his strings 
And it was like, I only saw her move when he said it was okay. I lost my mom before my very eyes when she was standing in the same room. So I knew this. Um, and I felt him not only between my mom and I, but between every relationship in the family, we couldn't really have relationships with one another. There was a lot of divide and conquer and keeping us separate and telling one person one thing and one person another. Um, so as things progressed, as my stepdad, um, he ended up taking me to Vegas without her consent. And um, that whole story is in the book. But when I finally told, I had finally told a school counselor everything. And she said, Ingrid, this is reportable. I have to include social services. Um, she said, why don't we bring your mom in to make the report? And, and in, I imagine uh, in the counselor's mind, she was like, oh, this mom is going to want to advocate for her daughter. So I'm mm -hmm. going to give her that opportunity, you know? And it gave me so much hope because first yeah. of all, I'm saying, you know, a big part of emotional abuse survivors is that we don't have physical bruises, which I had been asked many times, like, do, are you witnessing physical violence in the home, right? And all of these things were kind of deal breakers on whether or not someone was going to show up and say, oh, this deserves our attention. So um, because this counselor was saying, yes, this deserves attention. And not only do I want to protect you, I kind of want to show up for your mom. So my mom was called into school. We sat down with the social workers. I shared everything with all of them. I was more vulnerable than I'd ever been. My heart was just laid out in the mm -hmm. middle of the room. And the only thing my mom said is I can't talk about this anymore until Randy gets here. And that moment I knew the intervention had failed. I knew nothing was going to change. What I didn't know, and it still makes me emotional, is that that stance would remain for the rest of her life. And that I would spend the next 30 years waiting for her to see me mm -hmm. and understand and advocate for me, choose me, um, and I did that through perfectionism, through people pleasing, through, um, through, through hope and, um, understanding, you know, she was, she was, uh, abused too. Right. And so because I could understand that it's like, I gave my mom this free pass and I said, well, I'll just accept the pieces of her that she can offer. And it's not all bad, right? You know, every time I see her, she makes my favorite lasagna and she makes these beautiful handmade things and they're lovely. And so I'll just accept that, you know. But what I realized only through finally owning my story and the impact that it had is that I actually had to also own the impact that she had on me even though I understood where she was coming from, that I may have tried to give her a pass, but it didn't give my body a pass mm -hmm. in terms of the wound yeah. that it was carrying. And I had to feel that. And um, in feeling it, I had to set boundaries that I never in a million years imagined that I would set, never crossed my mind, never. But, you know, I you're bringing up a really good point. And that is what a lot of us daughters might face, sons, daughters. And that yeah. is that 
what do we do with that? Because your mom was not able to um, acknowledge that, yes, yeah. this happened. Right. Uh, it was awful. I'm sorry that it happened. None yeah. of that. Yeah. You know, what do we do with that? And, yeah. and so you, I mean, had she said those things, oh, Ingrid, I'm really sorry. Yeah. Maybe your response would have been different. Well, I feel like I set a pretty low bar <laughs> in terms of what I needed. And yes, what I needed was actual validation of what happened, that it was abusive, that it was grooming, and that she turned a blind eye Yeah, and stayed married with him for all those years, right? And after, to be honest, I guess I, I, guess I really knew that that was never going to be possible while my stepdad was still alive. But when he died five years ago, that's when the writing started. And that's when something shifted in terms of what I needed from my mom. It was like, okay, he's not on this earth anymore. I get you had to privilege your own survival when you were living in his home. But as the years went by after he died, I was like, my, it wasn't a conscious choice. My body was saying, I cannot be the only person carrying this truth anymore. Yeah. And so it just came to a point where I had to confront her. And initially it felt like there was an opening and she was saying, I do want more of a relationship with you. And yes, maybe we can talk about this stuff, but it's still too soon. I'm not ready. The feelings are too big. You know, and the little girl in me is like, oh my gosh, there's an opening. This yeah. is amazing. Right. And then I went and I carried that hope for three more years oh. that, we would finally, you know, have some sort of breakthrough and it didn't happen. What actually happened is her roommate um, and best friend who I had talked with about the book and she was already in the book. She read a copy before it was getting close to publication. And, um, and she told me that every time she tried to talk to my mom about it in the hope of being a bridge to help her understand, right. Which was my hope too. I literally, hoped and imagined that this book, interviewing all these people, having all this clarity and support would be the bridge back to my mom. Mm. And what ended up happening is I crossed that bridge and my mom is still saying, Ingrid's a liar. She made it all up. And, and there's a part of me that gets it, that if she really took in exactly what happened, she would have to admit that her whole life was a lie that her whole life was a lie. And, you know, she's in her early seventies now. She's not probably not going to do that. And I get it. She needs to stay defended around it. And she still drinks just about every day and she has her coping mechanisms. And, um, but I cannot be in relationship with someone. In fact, the only person in my entire life that I've ever met who knows me at all, who could see me through such a critical, deeply erroneous lens. You know, um, you don't get access to me in my life if you think that I'm a manipulative liar who just wants to stir up trouble, right? It's like, it finally became obvious to me. And so that's the boundary that I had to set. And, and I still feel like, I don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. This is what my body needs today. And I'm just honoring that, that there's no, 
it's not prescriptive. I don't think it's the right thing for everyone, you know, but it was the, it's the right thing for me today. Mm -hmm. And I have said, if you want to go to therapy, if you want to do some work and have a real conversation, I will always be available for that. Uh, but I'm not going back to the way that it's always been where I just show up and I'd be a good daughter and I privilege your wounds over my own healing because I see now the damage that I did, right? So there's this interesting thing that I had to realize. For decades, I'm looking at my mom's denial as though it's the problem. Thinking that she held the keys to my free. If my mom just says, oh, I'm so sorry, or that this thing happened, or I thought that that would free me. In reality, I was the one who was in denial. I was in denial over what my mom did and the impact that it had. And I had to take those blinders off because that meant I had to tap into all of those feelings that I had been avoiding mm -hmm. by privileging her and seeing her, you know, um, I had to tap into, oh God, this, my mom actually really abandoned me. And then she made it my fault, you know, and she still thinks that it is. And I had to feel all of that for the first time. And I make no bones about saying it's the hardest thing. It is the hardest thing I've ever done. Hmm. This, this healing work, the healing is harder than the original wound, a hundred percent, because I'm actually old enough now. And I have a nervous system that has the capacity to feel it and process it. All that unmetabolized stuff for decades mm -hmm. and decades. It's like it was waiting in the wings. And when it finally came through me, I mean, it feels devastating. It does. And I still say it's worth it. Best thing I've ever done. Mm -hmm. I'm worth it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't regret it. It's painful. I wish things were different, but um, I'm worth it. And you know what? My son is worth it because I have a seven-year-old and I didn't quite know that I wasn't able to not see him through such a critical lens because I was still in relationship to a mother that saw me through such a critical mm -hmm. lens. And when I finally set a boundary, I swear to God, it felt like a visceral mm -hmm. chain was being broken. Yeah. I, I don't even have the language for it. I felt not only am I freer, but now I can be more of the mom that I want to be. And I know that I couldn't do that if I stayed in denial and I stayed in the minimization and I said, oh, it's okay. Cause you did your best. Yeah. Well, you did do your best and I still get to have healthy boundaries for myself. That's the piece that was missing. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I love it. I get excited about that because I think about that little girl in you that had no choice, that had no voice, that could never just go away and, and have their own boundaries. So now you get to do it. Yeah. Boundaries yeah. never occurred to me because that wasn't, you couldn't yeah. have a boundary in a narcissistic family system. The punishment was steep for doing nothing. If I tried to have an autonomous self, you were annihilated. <sighs> So I just learned how to survive in that, right? And what a beautiful trauma response that is because it did allow me to survive it. But then I went out in the world with this system that knows how to tolerate chaos and abuse and neglect. And guess what relationships I ended up in? Toxic, abusive, neglectful, 
active addicts. And I kept saying, why? And I kept going to therapy. I know that I don't want these types of relationships. Why am I ending up in them? Well, because I had unresolved complex trauma. I was so comfortable in those relationships because I learned how to survive in them. Trauma bonding was all I knew. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because when you ask the question, why, I think you mentioned in the book, your therapist didn't give you the answer. You found out yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is, you know, that sort of breaks my heart a bit is that I was so earnest in Mm -hmm. my wanting to be better and get better. And no one ever said to me, Ingrid, um, you are a trauma survivor. This is what trauma is. This is why you can tell me your story 87,000 times and it's still being carried in your body in this way. No one ever named trauma and no one ever named narcissism. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't use the language of gaslighting or love bombing or grooming or all of these things until I finally put it into context in the last few years. And that sort of breaks my heart too, right? That this, I don't think we're training our clinicians very well if I had asked for help so many times. And and again, I couldn't see it because I was living in the self gaslighting, but I told my story and I, and I asked the questions and people couldn't connect the dots. Yeah. I and totally that happens a lot. That. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I totally relate to that. I don't think there was, it wasn't until I got myself diagnosed because, you know, I wasn't getting anywhere with all the therapists I saw. Right. I, I finally said, could you please test me for this? And, and that was when I found out. So it's like, oh, anyway, yeah. hopefully things are changing. Um, I think they are. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. Um, you know, I, I also, I think one of the things you're, you're bringing back your mom, <laughs> she said was when you, I remember when you were trying to talk to her about, about it, Yeah. she said something like that was the past, something yeah. like that. I want to live in the present or, or yeah. there's nothing I can do about it. And I think that that's something that you'll hear a lot from family members or what do you do with that? Well, I, that's exactly right. So this was recently when I had said, basically, I can't have you in my life anymore, that then she said something to the effect of, and this was over text. So it wasn't a conversation, but she said, you know, everybody makes mistakes. I'm sorry for mine. I'm choosing not to live in the past. We only have the present, right? And there are these very common sort of like, what I think are toxically positive platitudes that sound, they sound, and especially if your child is so desperate for connection, they could sound very compelling. She's sorry for her. She used the word sorry. I heard the word sorry. I'm laughing because I think I put the words I'm sorry in my own caregiver's mouth and then and then when she said it, I'm like that, that, no, no, that sounds like my words. Cause, cause I literally put them in there. Yes. So I know what exactly what you're saying. So continue. She said, so, repeat so those again. Saying, Cause that was so general. She said, everybody makes mistakes. Okay. I'm sorry for mine. Yep. Uh, with no mention of what those mistakes were ever. I've never heard them. Um, <laughs> uh, no specificity. I choose not to live in the past. She did say, I, I hope your book helps you heal. And um, I'm praying for you. Mm-hmm. Right. Also sounds very kind. 
could sound very kind. I'm praying for you. Also could sound pretty shaming. Like, oh, I'm going to keep praying for you because I figured out how to live in the present and I'm not carrying all that emotional. I hope your book finally helps you, you know, <laughs> leave this all behind is what it felt like to me. So mm-hmm. I had to take these sentences and almost one at a time, I had to run them through my nervous system and ask myself these questions. Do I feel seen? Do I feel heard? Do I feel that there was a genuine apology, both in language and in the energetic desire to truly amend the situation? Um, and all of those answers were no. They were Did no. I feel, yeah, all of them, 100% instantaneously. And then do I feel shamed, minimized, invalidated? Uh, yes. 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 Yes, Mm -hmm. across the board. And so this apology was sort of a quote unquote apology and it wasn't an apology at all. In fact, it was more gaslighting designed to make me go, well, she's, she's apologizing. Like she's, she's, and I had to say, no, it's not, it's not sufficient. And, um, which is so hard. You know, I talk about, you know, you and I met through Instagram. So you see all the things that I post, but one of them was how hard it is to set a boundary because Mm -hmm. in the face of the person doing even a teeny tiny fraction of the thing you want them to do, to have to say, no, that's not enough. Oh my gosh, the Mm -hmm. guilt that I feel, it feels mean. I feel like I'm Mm -hmm. being mean by holding a healthy boundary. It is so foreign. And yet I have to do it. I have to do it. There's a new litmus test. It's like, if it's not real, I'm sorry, but I'm choosing to only live in reality. I'm not buying into the fantasy that I wholeheartedly get that I have been participating in curating for all this time, right? My stepdad was at my wedding, right? I I have all these pictures of these beautiful family moments that in large part, were curated Mm -hmm. by me trying to hold on to some semblance of something lovely and beautiful. My, my deep desire for normalcy almost at any cost has had me participating in relationships that are devastating, you know, um, through this process, I've, I've, uh, had the amazing opportunity to get to know, um, Dr. Romani, who's a tremendous expert in narcissistic abuse. And she ended up endorsing my book and, we had this amazing conversation where she said, you know what, Ingrid, I call it the fetishism of the family. And when it works, this idea that family above all else, and it's beautiful, but when it doesn't, it keeps people stuck in some of the most dysfunctional, harmful, toxic relationships in the name of family. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's so genius. The fetishism of the family. That's exactly what it is. And I was participating. Um, but I'm not, I'm not willing to do it anymore. I can't, I just cannot. It's not even a choice. Like I I said, I hear you. Cause I know in my own nervous system, I mean, there were, there were many years, um, you know, when the kids were smaller that, you know, birthday parties and yeah, of course, no question. They, they're they're invited, of course. Yes. And then the more I started to heal and feel and feel Mm -hmm. my nervous system's response, it's like, no, no. No. (laughs) And so am I going to listen to the no? And I I think about that, that Mm -hmm. younger part of me that never got to say no. And I'm like, 
I hear you. I hear you, little one. No? Okay. You know, and, and I say no. And I, and I too will no longer tolerate um, one-sided relationships. The ones right. that me, 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 you know, those yes. me, 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 you yes. know, we know how a healthy relationship is reciprocal. There's reciprocity. I, I just, I can't, my nervous system cannot tolerate that uh, in, in terms of like relationships, you know, yeah. we're yeah. going to have um, you know, people that we're not so close with, but, but relationships where, where we give our time and heart and there's got to be reciprocity. Yes. Yes. And I think for so many kids with childhood trauma, we learned to absorb it all, to be the container for all. Oh, you need help. I'm going to be helpful. I'm going to find my worth and overdoing and people pleasing. And, you know, that's the other thing, learning about trauma responses finally allowed me to make sense to myself mm-hmm. because the other thing is, is people can talk about boundaries as though just said, Monique, just set a healthy boundary, you know, as though it's like, come on, just you're worth it. As though it's this cognitive thing of like, we should just know better. But I knew better. I knew better about all kinds of things for so long. What I didn't know or understand is that my body was still stuck in survival mode. I was living in a trauma response, thinking it was my personality. Yes. And my body will always privilege survival and connection, even if it's sort of toxic connection, really, Mm -hmm. it just will privilege that over all else. And so when I understood that, I went, no wonder, Mm -hmm. no wonder all of my relationships were lopsided in this way. And then I could start to do the work knowing it's not going to feel good. It's not going to feel like, go girl. You know, it might feel like this is horrible. It's so painful initially at least. And then, like I said, we start to, those atrophied spaces and places in our life start to fill up, but it's not a light switch. It's not an immediate thing, at least not in my experience. So I can't tell you how many times I end up saying to clients who are just in the thick of the pain or the turmoil. And they're like, I must be doing something wrong or I'm going backwards. And I'm like, no, this is what healing looks like. This is what healing looks like. And they go, oh, thank goodness. I'm so relieved. So I just have to keep going. Yes. Yes. You just keep going. And then they can come back around and go, oh my gosh, right. What I've now gained and what I can now see and hold and and it's life changing. It's literally life changing. This work, it it is, it is. And I'm I'm always the advocate for the one who didn't have a voice, who didn't, who wasn't seen, who was invisible, much like you described in your in your book. Yeah. And when we can, you know, we can't go back and change the past. We know that. But what we can do is give that part of us that validation today. That's right. And and that's how we do it by making those loving boundaries. I call them love notes, you know? Yeah. And, and, and saying no, instead of saying, yeah, okay. You know, and listening to what our insides really want. Isn't it amazing that that works Mm -hmm. when you really think about it? I just, there's such magic in that, 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 yeah, those, that, that 13 year old me and that 16 year old me, you know, in the beginning of my book is a picture of myself at 16, because that's when a lot of the stuff really happened. And I dedicated it to my son, but also to my 16 year old self, mm-hmm. because this work was for her. Yeah. And, 
And no, I, you know, look at my gray hair. I'm not 16 anymore, but I'm telling you that part of me that has been stuck and frozen and just thought she was broken, uh, knows without a doubt that she is not. I have chills. I have chills. Yeah. And she also Mm -hmm. sees the way that people are receiving your voice and your book and she is just celebrating and that's also how we heal that 16 year old self uh-huh. that's been amazing because even you saying you know that our stories are different but you couldn't put it down because there were things that reflected your own story mm-hmm. I've honestly been surprised and I think that this is I think this is probably common that We all have our specific um, nuanced sort of experiences. And so there was a big part of me, even before publishing the book, where I was like, first of all, wondering if everyone was going to say, well, Ingrid, that wasn't that bad, right? I was waiting for the backlash. Like, that's not a a trauma survivor story. Like, get over yourself. And secondly, that no one would identify because I thought my experiences were so unique or so specific. And the... I can't tell you the daily messages that I'm getting from people that are like, you have written my life mm-hmm. and they, it just makes me so emotional that, that they don't feel so alone. But then when they tell me that I feel less alone too, oh. because I was carrying this as though it's this weird slice yes. of a thing that no one may really yes. understand and get. And it's like, no, we really understand oh and we get gosh. it. And I know not everyone can have a voice as loud as the one that I am cultivating. And so if I can be that, not just for myself, but for other people and feel like I get to reflect them back to them so that Mm -hmm. even if it's in the quiet corners of their own life, that they can start to believe themselves by seeing their story in black and white on a page that it's real. I mean, it's a life beyond my truly wildest dreams is what is happening. I just can't, it's, it's too big for the 16 year old to take in, to be quite honest. Yeah. She's a little bit like, whoa, <laughs> you know, whoa, this is, um, it's going to take me some time to digest the goodness, the goodness, but that's worth it too. I will make all the space that I need to, to be able to hold that. Wow. Yeah, my heart is uh, is flooded right now, and um, I I so appreciate you and coming here and sharing with us and those who understand that we we see you, we yeah. know, we feel you, and you're not alone. So thank you so much, Ingrid. I will put the link to your book oh. in the show notes and. How can people get in touch with you? I know you also, I love your Instagram account. You make me laugh a lot because <laughs> you, you're very creative and you do little skits that crack me up. Um, so fun. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Instagram's a good way to join the conversation. Really? Um, I'm at Ingrid Clayton PhD, I think is my Instagram. I have a mailing list on my website. If you want to know what's going on in the future, that's another good way to stay in touch with me. And honestly, Monique, you know, when I was very new on Instagram and just starting to find my voice, I feel like you've been doing this long enough that you have this like interesting kind of spidey sense around like, you know, just uh, authenticity and and important voices. And I think that's why your podcast has become so 
crazy successful is that you run it through your nervous system and you're like, yes, this feels true. This is right. And you trust that and you bring it forward. And you brought me forward um, before I even completely knew what my whole story was or you know, I knew that there was something important to say and I was still sorting it out and you gave me a platform to do that. It's incredibly loving and generous. I adore you. Your work is oh. profound and I'm so grateful. Oh, if I could, I would hug you through the screen because we're looking at each other right now. <laughs> we really. will one day. Yes, we'll meet really tight. One day. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for being with thank us, Ingrid. My pleasure. Thank you. To find out more about trauma recovery coaching with me, you can visit my website at thehealingtraumapodcast.com. Mm-hmm.